welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, and hell yes, I'm still here. But where is here? It's confusing. I was living a boring life where superheroes only existed in comic books. Suddenly I was in another dimension where all of those books were real. It was awesome. I was awesome. This is either a quote from Gwenpool or Sean. You're, you've taken on a wild ride since the last episode. I have finally lost my marvels. No, it actually is Gwenpool. It's the very last Marvel book that I'm reading, and it is still such a joy. Uh, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seacourt. Go to seacourt.org for all your comic book critique needs, buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, Seacourt is also on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Uh, now, this episode is part of our, what shall we call it, Countdown to Destruction miniseries? Sure. The good version, not the one that the Dio put together. This is like the good countdown. <laughs> that was Countdown to Final Crisis, so Countdown to Podcast Crisis, whatever. Uh, anyway, <laughs> when we reach the end of this year, as we said in the last episode, this will be the end of the podcast. And so each new episode that we do up until the end is going to be a theme episode. The last episode, we've talked about our uh, much-beloved, by us at least, 2000 AD. And so, therefore, as a continuation, we're going to talk about uh, Marvel Comics, which we are dot, 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 blank, 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 about. Well, I don't think it would come as a surprise to our listeners that over the course of the podcast, and I think you could even track it, right, there has been a shift in the internal policies at Marvel and in the types of books that they're putting out that in turn, I think, affected both of us in terms of how we interact with these books, right? It became gradually less and less fun to talk about these Marvel books because of various things. And you were the one, I think, who pitched the idea, like, what if normal, like, more sensible people were running the show? Because I don't mm -hmm. think there's any question that a lot of the problems here are coming down from the top of the company. No, 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 Sean, Sean, Sean. I said, what if we were running the show? I never said anything about sensible people. <laughs> because uh, before we get into it, there are two answers to this. If you were running Marvel, what would you do? Because there is the answer that I would give of what would I actually do, which... What do I want to read and how do I want Marvel to publish it? Which would bring some very good comics possibly and would also collapse the company in six months. <laughs> that depends on how good they were. No, quality has nothing to do with sales, Sean. And we both know that. Well, we'll get into that, okay. And there's the answer of possibly what I think they should do in terms of promotions and sales and the titles they publish which are not the things that I want to read, because I think the best version of Marvel, both for Marvel and for the market, the society as a whole, whatever, is not something I want to read. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a good thing that I either grew out of Marvel or that Marvel grew out of me. And a lot of the people we've been bitching about over the last few years, people in comics commentary and comics Twitter or whatever are older people who read Marvel for a certain time and are convinced that Marvel must keep publishing stuff that they want to read, even though yep. the time when comics sold the best was when they always aimed for the children, right? Not comics, superhero comics. And people were allowed to grow out of reading Marvel and DC comics and just move on to other things. Only at a certain point it was decided that, no, we should just keep on growing with our readers, and now the comics are aimed at 40-year-olds with lots of disposable income and no kid can enter a comic book shop and like, oh, 
Four dollars. I will buy this twenty-page thing starring characters I don't know in situations I don't know and rated PG thirteen or older. You're right that we do need to differentiate. What we're going to be talking about in this episode is we're going to be playing a game of what if, as if we were both Uatu, except that how the watcher, you know, his tagline was always "I don't interfere and I don't judge." We're not going to interfere, but we are going to judge a little. I think. Well, he in- he lies because he interferes and judges all the damn time. So you're saying he's an unreliable watcher-narrator? Yes, yes. Shame, Uatu, shame. So what we're going to be doing is positioning ourselves as if we were in charge and talking about how we would structure Marvel. And I think that distinction that you make is really important. What would we do to put Marvel in a better place than it currently is? Not just critically, but commercially too, because it's no secret that they're not doing great. In the publishing market. As far as we know, and it's one of those things that we always have to parface and add, we only know sales, uh, physical sales for the direct market in North America. We know absolutely nothing about digital yeah. sales. We know absolutely nothing. And I don't know, Squirrel Girl could sell 20 million copies in Spain and I wouldn't know about it and you wouldn't know about it. But I think that part of the issue might be, before we start off properly, is... And this might be down to interpretation. I'll leave it to you to sort of like respond to that and tell me what you think. I characterize a lot of what Marvel does today in terms of the decisions they make creatively and editorially as acts of desperation. More crossovers, more deaths, more this, like more, 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 more. Price hikes, price hikes, price hikes. Oh, the price hikes, we'll get to that too. So when I see that, That reads to me like the actions of a company that is in a downward spiral. Now, as you say, we don't have, nobody has access to hard evidence about sales figures for digital, sales figures internationally. Loot boxes are messing with all the uh, order numbers now because they order in bulk this one particular issue and ship it out to everyone and you don't know what happens after that. Yeah, but, but if things were okay, we wouldn't be seeing Marvel Legacy so fast after uh, Secret Wars, was it? Oh, you think I can keep track? What I'm saying is, if things were on an okay path, they wouldn't need to do all those re-jumpings and re-numbers all the damn times. If things were okay, they would just carry on. And again, like this is my interpretation, but I honestly believe they would not be courting controversy as desperately as they are if they were in a position where they didn't have to. That sounds like something Thanos would say to the Avengers. You're courting controversy, (laughs) Avengers, by facing the Mad Titan. When you think about it, if you were in a position where you did not have to create all of this, like, internet rage and and stories, like the whole thing with uh, Nazi Steve, uh, I almost said Nazi Steve Trevor, that's a different company, Uh, Nazi Steve Rogers and all of this, like, if you didn't have to aim for shock value, if you didn't feel like you had to get people talking about your books, then I don't know that you would do that. Okay, uh, so let's get on to our points. Yes. I made a list. I've checked it at least once, and everybody's naughty. So the first thing I want to talk about is not Marvel superhero line. Okay. I, I want to talk about the Star Wars line, which... As far as publishing initiative, it's probably the most successful thing Marvel had over the last five years, both in terms of review and in terms of sales. They launched this line, and yeah, the sales aren't as high as they were. It's four years now? Three years? 
I think four, yeah. Four or three years aren't as high, but they're still stable and they have the most important thing, which is not the highest books, but they have good like mid-level 50 to 60,000 selling books, mm-hmm. books that have loyal audience. And they're changing Jason Aaron, who was the main writer to Kieran Gillen. And at, at this point, usually when they change writers, it's just green number. But here, they're a certain enough in the strength of the Star Wars ongoing title to just change writers, change creatives and say, no, we'll keep on going. We won't break the trend, which is the healthy thing. So my question is this, seeing as Marvel is now owned by Disney, uh, why stop at Star Wars? Why not publish other adaptations of stuff that Disney owns? Mm. Not everything has to be aligned, but the Jungle Book movie, which came out recently and made like gazillion dollars. Why wasn't there a graphic novel like either an adaptation or Tales from the Jungle Book, whatever? Yeah, the DuckTales reboot. Yeah, that's being published by IDW. We've talked about that before. Why not the DuckTales books, uh, Phineas and Fur books at the time, the Alice in Wonderland movies by Tim Burton, which were terrible trash, but you tell me that this type of darker and edgier Alice in Wonderland wouldn't have made a very high-selling dark fantasy comic from Marvel Comics if you put the right creative team on it, or even if not, just on the name alone. That goes into sort of the issue of to what extent are Disney's properties accessible to Marvel to begin with? Obviously, Star Wars, we know that they got that license from Dark Horse through Disney and that all worked out. Is it the case, though, that if they wanted to, for example, you know, if we're talking big sellers, big influential things, where's the Moana comic, right? Yeah. Or where's uh, what was before Moana? Frozen? I think there was something in between. I'm not sure. These Disney hits, uh, granted, sometimes they hit and sometimes they don't, but when they do hit, does Marvel have the ability to even get those? No, because Disney right now, they publish sort of comics, like uh, comics built out of capturing uh, pictures from the movie, stuff like this, through their own imprint that was before Marvel, Joe's Books, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's buried somewhere in the middle of previews and uh, Frozen the Cinema Story or Frozen Christmas made... You know, somebody took the images from the movie or from the TV special and arranged them and added thought balloons and such. And the fact that with a big comic publisher in their hand, Disney still needs to hold a different entity just to publish this. And that they still license tons of stuff for IDW. That's the damning thing, really. Because I, I get, okay, I get why IDW would be the ones to do the classic comic strips to bring them into reprint because Marvel don't have the properties that IDW have in terms of cleaning up old stuff. The IDW owns the Library of American Comics imprint and they yeah. have people who are experts at you know bringing old stuff back to print and, and cleaning up uh, old color plates and finding lost strips. But the DuckTales comics, why not Marvel? Why sell it to another company? The, the, the Star Wars Adventures line. Which, as we've said, by letting IDW do that, Disney and Marvel basically admit Marvel Comics cannot sell Star Wars to kids, which is insane. Um, I don't know if it is, though. Actually insane. Star Wars is something meant originally for kids. Adults could enjoy it. I can enjoy it. But if you can't sell a story of Rey with a lightsaber to a 10-year-old, you are 
terrible at your job. But that's the thing, isn't it? They didn't sell stories about rape. What were the first books to come out for the Star Wars line for Marvel? It was an interquel between the first and second movies. They were doing, like, Luke Skywalker again. They were doing Vader again. I, I can sort of forgive that because at the time there was a whole controversy about Disney not selling Ray properly because they thought, oh, it's a girl and the boys won't buy it. So there weren't any action figures. So Disney probably told them, focus on the things that are already successful. But the movie came out. It was a huge hit. Everybody loves Ray, except for some internet trolls. Or why didn't she have her own book and... Why not have two lines? Because for a long time, you remember Marvel had their superhero lines and their Marvel adventure lines. You don't even have to look at Marvel's past history for that. Uh, the Dark Horse Star Wars comics didn't follow one timeline. You had some that were in the past. You had some that were in the quote-unquote present of the story. And they had the Clone War adventures, which was based on the look and feel of the Gandhi Tartakovsky shorts, which were aimed at a younger audience. Explicitly. So why can't Marvel do that? It does raise an interesting question. Like if we're focusing on the Star Wars line specifically, the reason that I sort of lost interest in it very, very quickly was because it did seem, and this might be, I don't know if this is Disney's imperative or if it is Marvel's limitation, that they were very, very, very poor at properly expanding the universe. Like, you know, those of our listeners who know a bit more about Star Wars, there was this whole expanded universe, right? And yeah, it went off the rails at some point, and it got really crazy, and Disney ended up nullifying a lot of it, which not too much of value was lost. But the problem is, that expanded universe kept the franchise alive, right? It introduced new characters. You had characters growing up, getting older. You had situations that evolved and changed over the course of multiple novels, the reset in itself did not, quote-unquote, destroy that because you could go and read those books anytime you want. And yes, The Force Awakens is not part of that continuity, but whatever. Again, if you're in Star Wars, if you know comic books, you know alternate histories. It's no big deal. It's just an alternate reality. But the thing is, when Marvel took the license, look at how their line has developed from the launch of those two books. They've started a solo series for a character that Gillen introduced in Darth Vader, right? Dr. Aphra. Yeah. Who, yes, she's a very fun character. But again, by virtue of where she is situated, she is not a headliner. You have this uh, Poe Dameron ongoing by Charles Soleil, because who else would they take? Also, you know, very limited because it's in direct communication with a trilogy that isn't finished yet. So it's not like they can kill him off. It's not like they can make any real changes or whatever that won't be retroactively altered by the following films, right? Episodes 8 and 9 are still upcoming. So they haven't taken advantage of this whole universe by saying, you know what, let's let all of this go and go talk about some other people. Let's go look at Jedi doing some other things. Let's go back in time, forward in time, you know, change things around. Dark Horse had an entire series that was set, I think, like 200 years after the films. You're asking me about Dark Horse Star Wars comics. Give me a second here. It was a Star Wars Legacy is what it was called. And it was like this far future take on Star Wars. Now, it wasn't especially inventive or good. But just the fact that they tried that is a little bit thinking outside the box. And I think that really has been 
Marvel's failure with the Star Wars license is that they have had every miniseries that they've launched, every project that they've launched has been connected to either a popular supporting character from The Force Awakens or like Lando, 3PO, Leia, Han Solo, Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan, like characters that have been expounded on enough. There's a whole, you know, there were Star Wars novels that made anthologies out of stories that happened in like Jabba's palace to all the little characters who were running around, their own storylines. Bounty hunters had their own collection, right? Like it is a setting that allows you in theory to tell almost any story you want and bringing it back to further meditation on the character of Lando Calrissian. I love Lando Calrissian, but his story has been told. And no one is really looking to other possibilities, you know? And I think that's why enthusiasm may start, obviously, because this line is so directly tied to popular films that are in progress, you have to figure that when episode eight comes out, there's going to be a huge surge in Marvel sales. They're probably going to put out a couple of tie-in books. Looking at the way Disney is running the Star Wars movies right now, it looks like a, are you following the news? It looked like a disaster train. Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to go in blind. I mean, my perspective on this is I have a measure of faith in Rian Johnson. No, I like Rian Johnson, but the Han Solo movie, you know, it lost directors and they changed scripts and they replaced one of the main characters in the middle. And now yeah. the episode nine lost its director, which wasn't a great loss because it's not, it's Colin Tevro, who's not a very good director, but still. It looks more and more like their own mini uh, DCEU canon. Kind of, kind of. But I think the advantage there is simply that, it's funny, Disney are doing with the films what Marvel are doing with the comics, but in both cases they have overlooked like the blindingly obvious thing, which is that by nature of separating these stories as spin-offs and side stories and all of that, you don't actually have to engage with them. Yeah, I don't want us to get locked into uh, Star Wars. I was using it as an example because it's not a new thing. In the 70s and 80s, Marvel had a lot of success with licensed comics. The original Star Wars line basically saved the company from near yeah. bankruptcy at the time. And throughout the 80s, throughout the early 80s, G.I. Joe was one of the highest selling books, likewise Transformers. So why they didn't do it for such a long time, they let Dark Horse and Boom and IDW pick up all the licenses that, that muscle atrophied. They forgot how to do licensed comics other than Star Wars. And that's, I assume, because most of the creators grew up with Star Wars comics, so they know the beat and they're like, well, it's almost like the superhero line. It's hyper fun adventure stories in a large connected universe. But if, I don't know, if Disney bought the rights to Alien... Can Marvel do something with that now? Is there someone there would, who ha would have an idea? If Disney owned Transformers again, can they make like a Transformers universe like IDW did for good or ill? And could they make it a bestseller as much as the Star Wars line? And if not, why not? Like work on it, improve yourself. Well, let me ask you this then. In that case, like in the style of this episode, you have been given control of Marvel, including the Star Wars line. What series of actions do you take? Take your personal tastes out of it. What executive decisions would you make in the interests of 
ensuring the line's longevity and possibly bringing in more readers? Like, what would you change about it? Uh, this I would actually keep pretty much as is. I would narrow down the number of books, like no more than four ongoings, and you would only launch one if you have a movie coming soon starring the main character of that movie. Like, there would be a Han Solo title in place for the Han Solo movie. There would be a Ray title in place for the upcoming episode 8. And you'll have their main Star Wars title. You'll have probably the Darth Vader one, because that one is a huge success. Not my favorite, but it's a big, big success. And you would have one where it's sort of like almost 2008-esque anthology of the Star Wars universe, where you can test new characters and concepts within the Star Wars universe to see what the readers like. And if that one works, you can launch from it a new title. But I would keep it on the small, because if there's one thing Marvel does too much, it's squeezing the lemon. Like, it's seeing something successful and just going after it and killing all interest at once. And like I said, the other thing, I would talk to Disney and I would see what other licenses I can take. And I would start doing books aimed at kids and younger readers based on popular Disney things. And I would ask, well, what's your upcoming movie? What's the upcoming Pixar movie? Can I do a book about that? Or if you've started working production on Incredibles 2, well, let's start thinking about who would do the Incredibles book six months before the movie is out so we can have a collection when the movie comes out. That's what I want. I want more diverse titles in terms of stuff that's not superhero-based. Because if Marvel wants to drown the market in titles, that's their prerogative. But if you have 70 titles, don't make 57 of them superhero books and the next 13 Star Wars books. Have 30 or 40 superhero books, 5 or 6 Star Wars books, and then other things. Diversify, diversify, diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Lesson 1 of economics. And Marvel have one big basket and one slightly smaller basket, and that's it. If the superhero line falls or the Star Wars line falls, that's it for the company in terms of comic sales. What would you do? Uh, with regards to Star Wars specifically? Uh, no, no, no. In general terms of uh, general ideas about Marvel. So let's move on to a topic that I've discussed before, but that I have come to consider a different angle on. Events. Now, I know that Alonzo and Gabriel have been feeding everyone this lie about how they're not going to do any more crossovers after Secret Empire. Um, their word is meaningless. It's worth have you Have you seen the commercial for Legacy? No. Right beneath the Legacy logo, it says Marvel Legacy where any book is an event. Oh, well, there's their solution, I guess. <laughs> it's not an event if everything is an event. I suppose that's true. I'll get back to editor conduct later on, but I've been thinking about this whole prospect of crossovers and how it really has become sort of this self-perpetuating cycle and there's no status quo. And the logic for it seems to be circular, right? We do events because we used to do events and those events made money, so these events will make money. But I have a different angle. I think that there are two changes that I would make If I had to acknowledge the necessary evil that if you do not have crossovers, sales will tank across the line, and they are a necessary evil. Let's acknowledge that and say, okay then, two things. First of all, the writers who have been assigned to specific crossovers, Bendis gets way too much creative control. 
Spencer also, not the person for the job. You need to take those two people, you need to take the people that Marvel have situated as quote-unquote architects and downgrade them. Let Bendis work on his Jessica Jones stuff, he gets his Defender book, whatever. Sit in that corner and don't pipe up. Same goes for Spencer. You need someone... Actually, I would recommend Al Ewing in this role. You need someone who is capable of coming up with a very large-scale and complex story that can then be broken down into multiple events that actually do have story justification. Because I think one of the biggest problems with the way that Marvel is doing crossovers right now isn't just that they are so frequent and so frequently disappointing. Like, I have not heard anyone say in the last 10 years that a Marvel event ended well. Secret Empire was disappointing, Civil War II was disappointing, Secret Wars was disappointing, Axis was disappointing. They always seem to peter out at the end, and then the new one comes along. My thinking is, what if you treated this as if it were something structurally like, look at Norse mythology, right? You start off with, you have this story, this big adventure, all these people go do these things. The outcome of that event then initiates the next event. You have to create some sort of plot connection between all of these stories. And if you're able to do that, kind of like, ironically enough, similar to the structure of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Every film is a quote-unquote event. It's a story beat. It's a major element in this ongoing universe. Things change as a result of it. There are all of these character dynamics that evolve along the way. And you do get the sense that Infinity War is meant to be a capstone. It's meant to be a climax that will say, all of these threads are going to pay off now. There's the Soul Stone, and there's the Power Stone, and there's the Time... I don't I don't remember any capstone. There, <laughs> I, I, I've checked the gems. There's, there's not one of them there. But continue. Thanos is keeping it hidden. <laughs> like, at the end of the movie, it's like, the capstone, the most powerful stone of them all. And Captain America is like, oh, it's mine. And that's the end of the movie. It is a statue in the shape of Steve Rogers. <laughs> so um, that's the thing. If you have to have these crossovers, and I honestly think that Marvel have sort of, at this point, they've trapped themselves. They don't know how to de-escalate at this point, And they might not be able to because they have trained the market to constantly buy into these events. So we might be stuck with that. There was a long stretch of time in which Marvel didn't have events between 2003 and 2007. And even 2003, I remember because I was deep into Marvel at the time, Maximum Security by Busiek was like, oh, Marvel is doing an event. We literally don't remember the last time that happened. Yeah, there were periods where years would go by without them. And I think that they have burned that bridge, though. I think that they have gotten people so used to this pace that it would be practically impossible to change it. But what I'm saying is, okay, why can you not take three scheduled events, the three that you have planned going forward, your big universe-crossing titles, and align them in such a way that they tell a coherent story? Nothing that happened in Civil War II ended up mattering to anybody. A couple of books got shuffled around, these status quos are going to revert anyway, and then the new one came along, Secret Empire, blah, 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 blah. Something very important happened. Uh, nobody, I don't want to read about Carl Dennis anymore because she's, <laughs> she's, she's a 1984 villain after that book. Oh, Carol. That also goes to the whole problem of there are writers at Marvel 
specifically with event books, and this goes back to Civil War, it really does, where their intention is to make some kind of, or to create a kind of moral quandary for the heroes to struggle with, to work against, to try and figure out. In itself, that is not a bad initiative for an event to put this kind of question and have everybody fall into, you know, what do we do? How do we respond? That's the kind of thing that would make sense. The problem has been, of course, that in Civil War, in Secret Empire, in Civil War II, the immaturity of these writers and their their very poor reasoning skills, which they often demonstrate online anyway, leads them to create really ridiculous situations. Like, what was Civil War actually about? Uh, fascism defeating heroism. We're talking about the first one or the second one? The first one, right? And everyone treated the pro-registration stance as being valid because Captain America surrendered because he was tackled by the cast of 9-11 the musical. It was a situation that was trying to ask a moral question that Mark Miller did not have the ability to answer. Famous moral philosopher Mark Miller. Yes, who we turn to for guidance. Civil War is a book that I... Well, dislike would be a gentle term. <laughs> but it was a, a huge financial success. And it's one of those rare crossovers that still sells even before the movie came out. Trades of Civil War still sold. Yes. And, you know, younger kids in the, in the store that I go through all the time still talk about that one. So that was, as much as I dislike it, a model of success. It's just that... So this is the thing. I would argue... Yes, it is a sales success to this day, but I don't think that that sales success is born out of Miller successfully creating that argument. If you want to sell Civil War to kids, it's because these heroes are punching each other, which, quite frankly, you could have had anywhere. You know, any story could have been an excuse to have Captain America and Iron Man punch each other. That one lets the younger readers feel very smart, like, oh, they've talked about issues and subjects. I've heard that argument like a million times. Sure. It's a thoughtful story. So it's a stupid story, but it's a stupid story that makes you feel really smart about yourself. That's part of the problem. Like, if we acknowledge that events are necessary, first of all, get writers who are capable of managing all of those moving parts and making sure that characters do not get lost in the shuffle or changed in such a way that you basically render them almost impossible to use. And these things can be done, right? Al Ewing is writing so many books, if he wanted to have an internal crossover between all of his books, he could do that. Charles Soleil could do that, right? There are writers at Marvel who have the ability to keep their eye on the ball no matter how big the picture actually is. Maybe Marvel should just launch the Soleilverse, just books written by Charles Soleil about... Two dozen every month. At this point, it kind of is, isn't it? There has to be a different way of doing these events that does not create all of this chaos, all of this negativity. And despite what Marvel believes, if you look at Comicron, if you look at the beat, if you look at these sales charts, it is very clear to see that the sales spikes always go back down as soon as the event is over. It's a temporary stopgap. It's not solving anything. You need to go back to the idea of events being organic structures that are propelling the overall story forward. You know, you have your big conspiracy story. You have your big alternate reality story. You have your big mental inversion story or whatever. And these need to be perceived by people as chapters in ongoing 
narratives. Like the model, in my opinion, this is going way back. And I know that it's a practical impossibility today. But when you look at how X-Men had their internal crossovers in the 80s and late 90s. I listen to a lot of Jane Miles, so that's how I keep up to date on these things, right? Inferno, Extinction Agenda. Uh, these were all things that were, you know, dictated. They were not spontaneous. But what happened was every time there was this crossover, the books went into them, had their big transformative events, and came back out and were dealing with those ramifications going forward. You could absolutely make an argument that Claremont manages to follow this entire through line, you know, and that every stage is the next step. Here, the biggest problem that they're having is that every time they have an event, it establishes a new status quo that is then immediately overwritten by the next one. And so the natural response is, why would I pay 50 to $60 for this storyline when it doesn't matter? I think DC, again, as much as I don't like a lot of the stuff they're doing in terms of writing, did hit the right idea with their metal crossover, because it's basically a crossover of the Batman line, mm -hmm. and they brought in, I think, Hawkman, but it's not the whole of the DCU. If you read, I don't know, Deathstroke, It doesn't affect you as far as I know. Yeah. It's mostly limited to the titles that are already part of it. And so it doesn't feel like an overspill. So maybe limit the crossover for the titles that are naturally part of it. And don't just try to force it on other titles. Uh, the best Marvel crossover series in the last decade or so was the cosmic thing. You remember Annihilation, then Annihilation Conquest, and then the Realm of Kings thing. And that was because all of the books that were part of those crossovers were books that took place in the cosmic side, in space, and were featured characters that were rightfully part of the story. Nobody tried to force Daredevil to fight invading aliens in Hell's Kitchen because that wouldn't work for the tone of the story and it wouldn't work for the tone of stories that I believe it was Brubaker trying to tell at the time. Uh, yeah, although with Daredevil specifically, you do remember the uh, demonically possessed vacuums. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, he's called Daredevil. He fought Blackheart in the 80s. You know, demons, supernatural kind of works. Aliens. It's the Marvel Universe. Technically, everything can work. Yeah. But you shouldn't try to force a square peg round hole. If you have a writer, and he has this mega large idea, and he can... Hype up the audience. Scott Snyder. Hype up the audience towards metal with uh, Greg Capullo. Like, the audience will love it. And it's this big, giant Batman thing. But it's a big, giant Batman. Nobody's saying, Wonder Woman, within your own title, you must acknowledge metal. Maybe we'll have our... Because I don't read metal. I, try, I read the prelude and I don't care. But nobody's trying to force titles that are not connected to it into it. They'll just have their own short appearance of evil metal-wearing Wonder Woman thing. I don't know. Or even something as terrible as the Doomsday Clock. Reason number one why I don't read DC right now. It seems to be something that Jeff Jones is only doing for the Superman titles and some other small things. Not the whole DC Universe versus Watchmen. Because if you're a fan of, I don't know, Christopher Priest's Deathstroke, the last thing you want is Jeff Johns just sending his grubby ends and taking your beloved characters and forcing him to fight Rorschach or some such shit. Undoubtedly. It's interesting that you bring that up because I think that that is absolutely a lesson that DC learned 
Because if you think back, you remember, like, the whole thing with Countdown to Final Crisis and 52, and, and they used to do this thing. They used to have the line-wide crossovers one after the other, after the other, after the other. How far apart in time were Infinite Crisis and Final Crisis? Not that far apart, right? So no. they used to do this. I remember I dropped a lot of DC books like shortly before the new 52, I think it was 2007, 2008, specifically because all of the books that I was reading kept like, okay, now there's Countdown, now there's Red Skies, now there's this. It was the final countdown, Sean. Ugh. They were living together to a worse sales uh, level. Yeah, so when the new 52 happened, I think they sort of stepped back from that a little bit. And going on their current sales, they seem to be doing okay. This Rebirth thing, you know, some people rolled their eyes and justifiably so, but Rebirth was not a crossover. You could theoretically read any book and not have to worry about Rorschach showing up and being like, good book. The thing about Rebirth, I think, is that they've identified the audience they're aiming for with their superhero books. Mm. Because... Unlike what I've said earlier, it is the adult audience. They they basically want to reclaim the audience they had in the early 2000s, the, the people who read Jeff Johns' JSA uh, or whatever. But they know their audience and they're going for that audience. Marvel doesn't seem to really know who their audience is because if they're aiming for the 60-year-old who hates changes, well, he's not going to like your new female Thor. And if you're aiming for the audience that is willing to accept something new and different, they're not there for the one millionth crossover that costs them uh, $20,000 to collect it all because they are young and they probably can't afford it. So who's your audience, Marvel, again? If you want to have multiply audience for multiply level of titles, fine. Have your Marvel adventures and your regular Marvel, but know what it is, because I don't think they do. And speaking of prices... Yes, 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 take it away. Because, okay, I want to start not from the single issues. I I will leave that to you soon. I want to talk about trade prices, because I'm looking right now at the new Planet Hulk trade. Because there's a Thor Ragnarok movie coming, as, as we can see from the trailer. Parts of it are based on Planet Hulk. So that should be an easy sell for your comic book store, right? So why does the Planet Hulk trade now cost more than $30 when the trade that came out in 2010 cost 20 That's a 50% price hike. Why, oh why? Again, when you have this movie coming out, your big hyping new product is the Planet Hulk Omnibus, which costs $100. We've got to have money. No, but why... Who would pay for it? There are some people who would pay for it, but those are the hardcore fans and collectors who would have bought it, movie or not a movie. Surely, if you have, hopefully, all those kids coming in and and saying, oh, we like Hulk now. Hulk is super popular again. What can we read by Hulk? You should give them the Planet Hulk book, trade, whatever, and it should cost something that they can afford and shouldn't weigh half a ton with extras that... Again, nobody but process nerds care for. I've looked at the thing that Brian Hibbs uh, publishes at the end of every year. The books can sales for comic book shops over the year. And Marvel doesn't have a single book in the top 10. Like a single graphic novel. And, you know, DC doesn't have many either. It's mostly Raina Telegmire and the Young Adult things. But the two things that DC does have, they have The Killing Joke and they have Watchmen. 
Now, other than the fact that Ellen Moore is a good seller, those two things have always been in print and have always kept a rather steady price. Watchmen is a big book, right? It's 400 pages. It's 12 super long issues with extras, and it never jumped to the prices. Of, you won't pay $35 for the regular Watchmen trade, right? Because DC knows if we want people to fall in with us, if we want the readers to come back, we need to keep some of those hits in print and we need to keep them affordable. Well, I think in that specific case, it's more that they cannot afford for Watchmen to not sell because if it ever did go off the shelves, more would get the rights back. Uh, Watchmen would never go off the shelf and you can always sell a certain number to the high-priced, high-end retailers of the Watchmen Noir and Watchmen Absolute or whatever new Watchmen annotated, whatever new thing they will come up with. But they know to keep a simple no-frills edition available to all. What's Marvel's Evergreen? What's the two... Uh, not two. Like, if you can think of 10 Marvel books that you can keep as a graphic novel and always sell. Because DC can do it. DC can always sell... Uh, the Dark Knight Returns, and Year One, and The Killing Joke, and Watchmen, and possibly All-Star Superman, and Wonder Woman the Hikitea, and then Green Arrow Year One. Like, they have lots of stories that can be just sold as, this is a paperback, you read this, you don't need to f read after that parts 5, 6, 7, or 8, and they keep them in damn print. What does Marvel have that is A, as memorable, B, is in print and see in a normal decent price identity disc <laughs> exactly <laughs> no, no no because you have you have the new punisher series coming soon right now by all rights it should be very easy to sell the garth ennis steve dylan welcome back frank art the 12 issue first punisher thing they did that was a 12 issue book it one one of the first books uh, graphic novels i ever owned by the way and it cost 20 dollars then for 12 issues right now they're publishing it in a $40 version, and they have a Garth Ennis Punisher Omnibus. And again, no simple, cheap, affordable version that should, by all rights, fly off the shelf. Because Marvel, I'm sorry, I'm a bookseller, right? That's what I do in my civil life. I sell books. They are terrible at it. They are terrible at putting the right stocks. They are terrible at identifying the books that would sell at a certain time, and they are terrible at pricing them because... Their idea seems to be, well, this is popular right now, possibly. We'll price it as high as we can, and hopefully people will buy enough so we can return our investment, and then we'll, it will stay out of print for an eternity and a half until next time. Planet Hulk should always be in print. If I worked at a comic book store, as I do from time to time, I volunteer at my local store, I help them, I can always sell for a young new reader Planet Hulk. Like, it's a Hulk story, and he fights monsters, and he's a gladiator, and it's super cool, and there are aliens and blobs, and look, it's only $20, but, oh no, here, here's your $100 version. Oh, you don't have $100 because you're a kid. Sorry. Yeah, I've been racking my brain trying to think of, you know, if I were running the trade division, what stories would I suggest to be, you know, the 10 evergreen trades for Marvel? There are stories that Marvel put out that I consider fantastic. But a lot of them, like, go classic, right? The Dark Phoenix Saga. Or go more contemporary, like uh, The Death of Captain America. These are titles that were really, really good. And I would recommend them to people, but they are parts of an ongoing. They were not like Watchmen is 12 issues and nothing more. 
There was no second book of Watchmen. It would just be that one thing. They don't have a lot of... You're forgetting the super classic before Watchmen, which everybody loves and buys. I know like, of no such thing. Like, it flies off the shelves, Sean. You can't keep it out of the hands of readers. Everybody read and reread a thousand times before Watchmen presents dollar bill number one. Never heard of it. I deny such a thing ever existed. The trick with trades, right? The way to make trades successful is you can do one of two things. You can either put out a series of trade paperbacks in which this is a singular ongoing run. These books are all the volumes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, however long it takes. You read them start to finish and you are done. It's the same model that fantasy novels use, right? That idea of like sequentially following one story is something that you can do. It is absolutely a valid thing. Image's entire trade program works that way. Here's the volume one, here's volume two, and volume one is usually a little cheaper to get people interested. So epic stories that I always recommend to people is The Hulk, Future Imperfect, is Gwenpool, is really good, you know. Is... Right off the top of my head, like I said, Planet Hulk, Garth Ennis' Wolverine, Daredevil, not Born Again, The Man Without Fear would probably be the best one, Doctor Strange, The Oath, yes. uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, like the first... 10 issues of uh, Baker and no. that I would say no because it's not a self it, it doesn't stop at an end point if you were to take the original winter soldier run like from the first issue that Brubaker did it was um, 14 issues right and then issue 14 yeah that's a bit too big but no, no no let's say that even if you did that right even if you had an omnibus edition you get to the end of issue 14 it does not have closure. He's free, he remembers who he is, and they're like, okay, there's more shit coming on. Nothing is resolved. If you want actual resolution, you have to go through the entire series. And that, I think, is the problem, like, structurally. Because these trades exist, in, and people know this, like, I'm sorry, no kid, in my opinion, in 2017 with the internet, is capable of walking into a comic book store and not knowing that if you pick up volume one of the Fantastic Four, it's not actually the beginning of the story. And if you get to volume seven, that's not going to be the end of the story. That's the, the quintessential difference, I think, is their inability to create stories. And when you think about it, right, this was true. For Dark Knight Returns. It's true for year one. It's true for Green Arrow year one. It's true for every book that DC has that is considered evergreen. It's evergreen because you can read it and be done. There is no after the Dark Knight Returns. Unless you read The Dark Knight Strikes Again and why would you do that, right? But the story doesn't require you to do that. There's no to be continued at the end. And with Marvel there is. They've never managed to box a story and sell it in such a way that people feel like they get the whole thing. The Dark Phoenix Saga, we'll talk about this in a later episode, it was one of the first comics I ever read. It got me onto X-Men, but that book did not explain anything. You just sort of jumped in and there were things that you understood and there were things that you didn't understand. I think they have them. We just can't think of them right at the top of our head right now. And I think a good collection department should identify them and say, okay, what are the stories that we can always keep in print and that should always be sellable? Uh, I don't know, Wolverine Weapon X, the original miniseries, the one that was through uh, Marvel Comics Present, Barry Windsor Smith. 
that should always sell. And that's a that's a weird story because it's a Wolverine story where he's just an dirty animal and the whole thing is presented through the point of view of the evil scientist but it's a great story and i and you should be able to give it to some young kid traumatize them forever well yeah and more to the point you don't need to know anything about wolverine in order to enjoy that story as is it's not a chapter in an ongoing thing you don't even know in the end if it actually happened because Windsor Smith puts in all these ambiguities like, oh, maybe it was just his programming, maybe it's not real. You know, like they were messing with his memories even then. So you, that is something that would actually absolutely sell. But on the other hand, it's an image of a Wolverine that they have tried very hard not to do. Because compare what happens in Weapon X to what happens with Hugh Jackman in X-Men Apocalypse. Okay, so the, the original Miller... Claremont Wolverine miniseries. Sure, when he goes to Japan. Sure. Yeah, Every, everybody loves a good Wolverine versus Ninja story. Yeah, that is the sort of model that would work for them trade-wise. But they are too invested in the idea of getting people hooked onto these stories, but at the same time, making the trends too expensive to follow. I'm Again, we remember when we talked last episode about the 2018 Mega Collection, the Ashet thing? Before that, they had a Marvel collection. That was their first pilot program, as it were, because, well, Marvel sells well. And I see you can still buy them through the Hachette uh, website. Again, only only in the UK, folks. Sorry. And those are hardcovers that cost 8 to 10 pounds each. And each of them had either a complete story or, you know, one a third. So I'm looking like they have a Power Man story. And it's supposedly a standalone part. They have uh, the Black Widow miniseries, the Paul Cornell one. That is a standalone, because why not? She's in the Avengers. They have Carol Danvers' first story arc as Captain Marvel. Yeah. We've talked for... I mean, this is a known fact about Marvel, but it, it bears repeating here that they have a spectacular failure to take advantage of, like, the transmedia empire that they already have. They don't use their books to promote the movies. They don't use their books to promote the TV shows. The TV shows have absolutely no use for the books. Same goes for the movie. Like there's this essential disconnect between these three outputs or platforms for superhero stories in the Marvel universe. And they never really figured it out. You know, they never knew how to, for an audience that leaves an X-Men movie or leaves an Avengers movie and wants more with these characters. They never learned how to take that character as they appear in the film, put them on the shelf for people to pick up. They tried that with the Ultimate line, right? Initially, if you look at like the very, 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 very beginning of Ultimate Spider-Man, you could easily see how someone who had gone to see a Sam Raimi film and wanted to read about Spider-Man could pick up the first trade and go from there, right? It wasn't exactly the same, but it was close enough. But the Ultimate Universe disappeared up its own ass. And then, you know, once you do that, you end up recreating the same problems of the original. They never figured that out. And all of the TV shows and the animated cartoons that they have, all of these things. And they never knew how to synchronize them so that they work well. We were talking about a couple of episodes back, the absurdity of Black Panther spin-off titles getting cancelled when the movie is coming up. I do wonder if they should try and adopt a more anima-like model in which every few years you reboot the story and you do it in a different version. Gundam, 
where you have several t- possible timelines and you can deep in and deep out and the fans like I guess some of them like one line more and one line less but they are willing to accept them all as valid or even Transformers fiction where you have oh fiction based on the original TV show and fiction based on the Beast Wars TV show and you have comics based on the movies and they're all like their own mini continuities and if one becomes unpopular you're just saying well okay we won't do this version right now we'll let it slip away and maybe we'll try and revive that in a few years time when interest is has come back again because the problem with the ultimate universe is that it was a fresh new beginning up until it wasn't because nothing can be fresh new beginning for over 10 years especially when you give it to Jeff Loeb <laughs> <laughs> this is as unfresh as possible yeah but at a certain point much earlier than they did it they should have caught and run and said well maybe we should should do something else like end the ultimate universe and do the Marvel ultimate universe after a two-year break where fans would again want something some new interest points there might have been an opportunity not recently but like in the distant past where Marvel could have trained its readers to embrace the idea of changing time like the thing with Gundam is that you You have a series start to finish it tells a story and then it's done and they don't go back to it right and then they start a new series with new characters and it's just the one Gundam that keeps coming back and visual cues that come back and every now and then but the stories tend to be quintessentially different Marvel could have done that but I think even in like the 80s it was already too late for that because the People had gotten used to the idea that these are the characters that you're going to follow and these are the kinds of stories. And even when they had events like Heroes Reborn, which was an abomination, you know, onslaught and all of that nonsense, and they had the opportunity to rebuild their fictional universe from the ground up, they were so set in their ways that the end product ended up being almost identical. And within a couple of years, any differences were wiped away. Look at Secret Wars, right? Secret Wars was explicitly a story that was meant to destroy the Marvel multiverse and it was going to wipe the slate entirely clean and everything was going to be displaced and they were going to build it back up again. In practice, Civil War happened within, what, a year, two years of that happening? The only different thing is they stopped selling Fantastic Four... And Miles Morales became part of the Marvel Universe. And that's it. Yeah. That was their... And they had the opportunity. And they had the knowledge. Because don't forget, they did Secret Wars after New 52. So they already had an existing theoretical model for if you really do want... I mean, New 52, feelings were mixed about it from start to finish. It, it was a big success at the first go, but then, yeah. like the Ultimate Universe, it lost sales. And it couldn't retain interest also. Unlike other people, I don't think it's because, oh, they've rebooted the universe. A lot of it was just, like, really bad books. Yeah, that, well, that's the main argument, I think. Because New 52, in theory, was not something that DC had never done before. You go back to Crisis on Infinite Earths, they did it. Oh, DC does that all the time. Like, if somebody sneezes at the DC office, they're like, reboot the universe! Yeah, a bright light sh- sort of shines over everything and then start over. But I think the difference... Start the final night signal. <laughs> But that's the thing, isn't it? Like, when DC do it, the sense that you get is the changes are not just cosmetic. 
right? Whereas Marvel had the opportunity with Secret Wars to make some real changes, to really think about what they wanted to do going forward, especially since, you know, when New, when New 52 was coming out, DC did not have, like, a successful cinematic universe to pin it to. Marvel did. And instead, they really just used it to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. And I think that was, you know, that might have been their last chance. The Gundam model, maybe if they'd implemented it 30 years ago. Now, like, there would be too much resistance to the prospect of a real break. No, no, I was, I was just talking about selling Gundam models. They seem to be very successful. <laughs> You're confused. I just wanted Marvel to pick up the license. As if you know, Japan... Mo- mo- model selling is a big business, John. Those things cost a bundle. But Tom, be real with me. If you were in charge of the Gundam license and raking in all that money, is Marvel the company you'd give it to? Possibly not. IDW would possibly have picked that American license. They always do. Nick Spencer would end up painting swastikas on the Gundam. We don't well, need it's, that. It's Japan. <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't watched all of Gundam, but they... A lot of people there didn't seem to get the memo that you shouldn't put swastikas on guys who are not like World War II era Nazis. They weren't subtle, no. So this brings me to another subject that I wanted to talk to you about. As uh, co-runner of Marvel with me, I think that uh, we have a problem with specific talent and online interactions. And this is something that HR would normally take care of. HR Geiger, the famous... HR Geiger! <laughs> like, you, you see HR Geiger working in HR, like, this, <laughs> this man has argued with the fans too much. Feed him to the penis machine. Yeah, the penis machine, yes! Oh, I love it. So, yeah, that is absolutely now, an idea. I want to write a sitcom, like <laughs> yes! an HR resource sitcom starring HR Geiger. Who's dead, but, you know, it's comics. You can, we can always bring it back. That's the script to your future, Shock. Um, Age <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Geiger's Human Resource Squad. So, yeah, we have a problem with people who, within Marvel, right, be they writers, be they artists, be they editors, who have a tendency towards social interaction that is actively antagonizing fans. Now... I am not a big believer in the idea that all publicity is good publicity because the last person to tout that line at Marvel was Bill Jemis and look at where he ended up. I can't see it, Sean. It's too far away. So Axel Alonso needs to stop giving like inflammatory comments. David Gabriel needs to stop lying. Just like flat out lies and then people come to them. Nick Spencer, you know, what was he saying for months and months and months about Secret Empire? It's not brainwashing. It's not a cosmic cube. It's not this. Just let the story run. See, it's hard because on Twitter, he can't just hold his old stopwatch in front of your eyes. It's like, it's not brainwashing. There will not be a reboot. The biggest problem is that at this point, I think, there's no benefit to it anymore. I categorically refuse to believe that anyone was engaged in a Twitter fight with Nick Spencer and then went and bought his book. That's not any model of human behavior that I would recognize. So I don't think that it does anything. Dance Again, slot. you're talking about normal human behavior, and we, I am talking about comic fans, Sean. I hate it, but I will buy it as being the comic sales model for... Wait, wait. You're saying comics fans don't hold grudges? No, I'm, I'm saying a lot of them grumble, but they buy the stuff anyway. 
For sure. And if I were running Marvel, I would be grateful for that. But I think the problem is that they have become so unreliable and so despised by the people that they should be appealing to that even if readers are flocking to them and like buying out of spite or buying out of hatred or grumbling and doing it anyway, that's not a long-term model. You can only do that for so long. At some point... I I think the problem with that is that there are too many assholes on the fan side of the fence also. That too. And saying, well, you shouldn't argue with the fans, what are you supposed to do if you're a... one of Marvel's few female creators or editors and racist, sexist idiots keep on harassing you and saying, well, we're fans, you shouldn't insult us. Well, that was part of the problem, though, wasn't it? The most recent example that we're talking about, Gabby Rivera is getting some flack, too, I'm sure. But the, the big name that everyone remembers about this whole story was Chelsea Kane. And what happened when Chelsea Kane was harassed? Alonzo did nothing. Two creators spoke out in defense of Chelsea Kane who were not editors, who were not executives. They were just writers like she was. And Bendis argued with her that it had nothing to do with comics. So, you know, if you are being harassed online, it is the company's obligation to defend you. That does not require you to then go in and behave like an idiot. I see, by the way, that you've missed the recent uh, assault on female creators in the industry. I'm afraid to ask. Oh, the milkshake thing? Uh, Heather Antos, the editor and inspiration of your beloved Gwenpool. I wish that I could say I was surprised. I think it started because she made fun out of Boba Fett or something. Oh no, not Boba Fett. Everybody loves Boba Fett. He's the most important character in Star Wars. How could she? I don't know. No, no, no. Oh, wait, I forgot. It was drinking milkshake while being female. Oh no, her milkshake brought all the trolls to the yard? So this is the thing. It's when you have situations of harassment. And you know what? I have seen Dan Slott being harassed. I've seen Nick Spencer being harassed. I don't condone that behavior at all. But I think it is deeply, deeply problematic to have the creator be on the ground floor slinging mud. Because ultimately, those fans can rabble and bitch as much as they want. Their options are buy the comic, don't buy the comic. If they are buying the comic... They are giving Nick Spencer money. So there's a dynamic here that is not like people who are sniping at each other equally. He is working for Marvel. His Twitter reflects Marvel. His Twitter reflects on Disney. And because of that, there has to be some kind of decorum on their part, even if it is one-sided. Just don't go on Twitter at all. Or don't have a Twitter that is open to discussions of your work. You are not obligated to talk about your work on Twitter. There, no one is forcing Dan Slott to get into these arguments with people about Spider-Man. Just don't do it. Publish the tweet, say, oh, there's a new Spider-Man book by me coming out. But probably it's not the smartest idea for you to engage with idiots in a mudslinging war. Morally, I can't see myself just saying to people, well, if somebody called you terrible things, you're not allowed to react. Maybe advise not to react, but just saying you can't do that. That seems... Especially when most of the creators working at Marvel right now are not exclusive. Like, they're not people who technically represent Marvel. They're just freelancers. Dan Slott, as far as I know, despite working only for Marvel over the last 10, 15 years is not an exclusive guy. Technically, he can go off 
I don't think that they have to be. I don't think like being exclusive to Marvel offer, should offer you protections that not being exclusive to them doesn't. Because all that does is discourage new people from joining if you're going to treat the exclusives differently on that level. But the problem, I think, is more you're right that like, to say you are not allowed is like, eh, go police somebody's private Twitter. But Marvel have also consistently failed to send clear messages. They did not step up and verbally take down the people who were trolling Chelsea Kane until she was already done. She had deleted her Twitter. She's like, I'm, I'm out of all of this, right? They're not stepping up to do anything about Gabby Rivera, even though, again, like Gabby Rivera is not to everyone's taste. Neither was Rob Liefeld. Yeah, like we said, we, we, did, we both didn't like America number one, but if, if you have this thing in your heart of saying, well, I read this comic, which was badly told, so I'm going to go tw- to Twitter and add people with insults. You're a terrible person. Unless you did that for every comic Jeff Loeb wrote in the 2000s, you're a hypocrite. You shouldn't do that. You can write reviews, you can write your thing, but the whole idea of believing that because you can get in touch with people quickly, you have the right to come into somebody's house, get into their face and tell them they suck, that's... Terrible. I, I, I write sometimes on Twitter and I vent about comics, but if I dislike a comics, I never say at some guy, hey, your comic sucks. I'm just saying, whoa, this new comic sucks. And if they want to search their names, that's their prerogative. Yeah. And if you want to have a discussion that, like, first of all, also like on the critic side, you know, we are not obligated to read every comic and then do a 1200 page dissertation on whether we liked it or not. Oh, yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's completely legit to say, you know what? I read uh, issue number one of whatever. Did not appeal to me. Didn't like it. Goodbye. Yeah, Marvel. Publishing whatever comics was a bad choice. Nobody knows what it's about. <laughs> and, and, and Charles Soleil as an artist, writer, editor, inker, uh, letterer, and the guy who stapled the comic. That was a bit too much even for him. Is that why he put all the secret messages in the back page saying, help me, I'm trapped in a Marvel factory? Yeah. Yeah, so there needs to be, I think, a clearer message sent from the administration. Because this is the thing. Axel Alonso in particular, he likes to try and play both sides. He likes to say Marvel is committed to diversity hiring, but also we're getting rid of diverse characters. But also diversity is very important to us. But also uh, uh, we don't have a lot of women working for us because we can't find them. We don't know where they are. But also we're firing Roxanne Gay, right? He, he very much tries to placate as many people as possible, which on the one hand is the role of an editor-in-chief, but also sends very mixed signals to people who are trying to parse what the hell this company is doing. And that's why every time there's an initiative, he ends up lying. And you can catch him very easily in lies. Now that Secret Empire is over and people know how it ends, every tweet he ever wrote where he lied about Secret Empires, people have screen capped that and sent it right back to him. It does not pay. Be honest with your readers. Speak to what is actually going on. Do not try and invent or lie or create all of this hype about how this isn't going to happen and this is going to happen and Legacy is going to be the springboard for a hundred years of Marvel stories and it's going to be wonderful. It's just another event. Or just say learn it. Learn when not to speak. That too. Don't <laughs> speak, as, as the song said. Yeah, sometimes silence is absolutely the better option. 
So with that, I would like to suggest to close out the episode, any particular titles you would greenlight if you were Marvel's editor-in-chief? If I were Marvel editor-in-chief? Hmm, okay. Uh, cha-cha-cha-cha. Okay, uh, first one is something that you would absolutely hate, but I, you know, walk with me there. Okay. I want Marvel to have one book, which is their version of the Vertigo line, which is the thing they will put up to the Eisners. Okay. And I think it should be Doctor Strange. If, if you have one title that should be experimental and weird and appealing to a different audience, and hopefully you can sell it as a book, it should be Doctor Strange. And I want the writer to be your favorite boy, uh, Alish Kott. Okay. And what I really want to do is I want to do it with rotating artists. I want two artists, uh, and they're telling a different type of story with every issue, like what uh, Greg Rocca did with Wonder Woman recently. I want him to work with J.H. Williams on one story, which is like a cosmic, bizarre story where he goes and fights the forces that control our universe. And it will be like full avant-garde artistic thing. And the other thing, I want a black and white horror story drawn by the Israeli, the guy who mostly does the odd odds and ends stories on 2000 AD. He did the Mega City Underworld, and he did uh, what was the one? Red Seas. Uh, I think so. I think so. We did Red Seas, yes, and Extinct with Paul Cornell. So I want that. I want like the odds out title. I want more children's books. I want an ongoing pet Avenger book. <laughs> I'm not kidding. A pet Avenger book aimed at a young young audience. Eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds. Not aimed at teens, not aimed at the whole family, not a wink-wink, nudge-nudge. Straight up. Adventures for Kids, and I want it to be uh, Rachel Smith, who's a British uh, writer-artist who does really funny stuff, and she can do adult stuff. She she has like some really, really interesting graphic novels for adults, but she can also do like fun kids jokes type stuff. I want a tie-in story uh, set in an alternate universe to the uh, Marvel Academy uh, mobile game. Oh, I heard about that. The one where everybody's kid. Because it's a very popular game and it brings lots of fans in and people write fanfics and fan art, whatever. So I want a comic based on that continuity. And I want the writer to be John Ellison of Giant Days. <laughs> of course. Because he's good at, you know, jokes and weirdness and having many, many multiplied characters because he came from webcomic. He knows how to do lots and lots of characters. And I want the artist team to be uh, Guru Hiru, uh, the ladies who right now do Gwenpool. Because, again, they can do fun slapstick type thing, which is the story that we need with that. With that. And that's the top three that are like, in my head right now. Okay. I would take a more structural approach. What I would do is take the mass of titles that Marvel is currently publishing and segregate them into imprints. So you would have an all-ages imprint, not one title, not one Marvel Adventures thing, but rather something kind of like MC2, if you remember that? With, uh, mm, yeah, yeah. with Tom DeFalco's Spider-Girl. Something in the sense of three or four books that are connected to each other 
set in some multiverse, whatever, doesn't need, or in the Marvel Universe proper, it doesn't matter, right? A way that you could take, for example, Moon Girl and, uh, I don't know what else, Runaways, uh, Totally Awesome Hulk, All New Ghost Rider, and put them under an imprint that would at least give them some kind of brand identity rather than shove them out to die. They could share space, they could hang out together, not even a team, don't make them a team, right? Just have these be solo books that can interconnect as Marvel whatever. Marvel this, Marvel that. And then what might happen as a result of this, it would be an experiment. I'm, you know, I don't have a crystal ball on me. But if you were able to enforce a stronger sense of identity on those floating titles that otherwise get lost in the shuffle, it would be a lot easier, first of all, to coordinate line-wide crossovers. Second of all, to create new markets. You could absolutely have a group of books that pull a different kind of audience in. And yeah, maybe they wouldn't necessarily jump over to other imprints, but at least that imprint would be secure, right? It would be like the Ultimate Universe in the early days without the need for it to follow the same tropes of now everyone is in the Ultimates and Wanda and Pietro are having incest and uh, uh, the the blob has eaten Janet Van Pym, and, you know, there's a tidal wave that's destroying New York and Magneto. You don't need that. You don't need, like, the big, epic, grandiose, world-changing events for every imprint. But if you could, you know, bring back Max as a platform for telling adult-themed stories with these characters, because there's an audience for that, too, that is also not getting what they want, Right. So you're you're talking like more regimented Marvel, and yeah. So like Marvel Adventure Line, Marvel Max Line, possibly Marvel Knights again. Well, Marvel Knights, I think the failure with Marvel Knights was that its identity was very loose. I remember it being like they defined it as ground level superheroes. You need something a little bit more than that. Like All Ages tells you any book in that line you can pick up. And instead of them being bastardized versions of books that were already in print, like you had Marvel Adventures X-Men, for what? I'm saying have original titles there. You know, put Moon Girl in there. Put all new Ghost Rider in there. Put the titles that you already have. Squirrel Girl, Gwenpool, right? If you could gather those books, which, like, those books barely connect to the larger Marvel Universe anyway. But if you could box them up and package them to readers as... If you like Moon Girl, here's another book in that same imprint. Because if you're reading the previews, how would you know if you like Squirrel Girl, you might look like Gwenpool too. Or you might like Ms. Marvel. Or you might like, right? There are thematic connections that Marvel have created between their books that they don't tell people about. So if it were more regimented, People would then be, you know, you would not, you might not be, you wouldn't have a lot of crossover maybe between the imprints, but you could secure a constant readership for those specific imprints. Would you have a creator-owned type thing like Icon or at the earlier days, what was it? Uh, the, the one Epic. mostly the, the Europeans? Epic, yeah. Or Vertigo? No. And, and I'll tell you why. In order for that to happen, Marvel would need to not be the kind of corporate entity that it is. Because 
it has, you know, when you look at the talent pool, if you look at the latest previews or the previews that are coming out this month, Marvel have a very real problem with maintaining a talent pool, right? When they bring creators over like Tanahisi Coates, like Rainbow Roll, like Gabby Rivera, they tend to assign them to existing titles and then just let it flow. I don't know that they would have any interest in saying, you know, to, to someone like a celebrity writer to say, like, come in and do creator own stuff because they can do that stuff on their own. They, why would they need Marvel for that? You know what? I think you're right, Sean. But also I have a better idea. Shoot. Uh, we should change the name to Moda Comics and they should only publish Moda Comics. <laughs> like 20 or 30 Modoc books, I think, is the right amount of Modoc per month. And, and you can have him in a romance type comic and you can have him in a, <laughs> in a Modoc Max where he murders people, uh, by, by the bucket load. I don't know how many people you can put in a bucket. And you can have like a kids comics Modoc and you can have like, a manga style modok where he has an even bigger robot body and, uh, and, i will concede and that you can have, and you can have like a high-end like french european album modok where it's drawn by this jacques you you pay jacques d like tons of money to come out of his french enclave and like draw it as a very super sophisticated type thing and he has a tiny mustache and he drinks wine with his telepathy And I, I, I haven't read enough Jacques Tardy. If there are any Jacques Tardy fans listening to this podcast right now, they are fuming in their barrets, Sean. I will concede that on one condition. Yes. That in the Marvel Max book, when he does have his inevitable sex... Change the name of the company. It's now Modax. Modax. It's the, the Modax book. Uh, when he does have his inevitable sex scene... Uh, I demand that it be drawn by Milo Manara, but you have to tell me who writes it. The artist must be Milo Manara, who's the writer. Uh, well, disgusting sex scene, Alan Moore, obviously. <laughs> oh, but he's retiring, Tom. Well, he's retiring from regular comics. No, nobody retires from Modoc Max. They, they want to make you an offer you can't refuse. They put a head in your bed and it's because it's modok comics it's a very large head oh modok it's it's the biggest horse head you can find it's like a gigantic horse he would die from a heart attack if they hadn't killed him and chopped up his head before that <laughs> you remember when they used to put the headshots of the characters in the corner uh, of the book yeah. it would just be modok uh but you know modok is still very prevalent and around in the marvel universe i feel like he's a presence there he turns up it's okay He still hasn't got his own movie, Sean. I, I consider that a sin. Like, they have five Chrises and not one Modoc. And Willem Dafoe is free. So, like, what's stopping them, really? <laughs> uh, okay, I, th I think we'll finish with that one. <laughs> Absolutely. This was our Marvel special uh, Smorgasbord episode. If you enjoyed this episode, previous episodes are on Seekward at Seekward.org, where you can also support us via Patreon. If you think I am actually clever and funny, if you want to uh, see more of me, I am on Twitter at Tom Shops. And if you like Sean Voice, he has another podcast, right? I do. I run a video game podcast called Games of Future Past. That you can find at what, your library's in right now? Uh, no, we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. 
For as long as SoundCloud is still alive, I don't know. You are are at many places. You are the Alpha and the Omega video game podcast. I am MODOK! No, I could never pull off that look, though. So, I was Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appetit! Thank you.